think we'll get started. Welcome to the uh, the seminar. to introduce Dr. Virginia Jean Tryon from MGH today, who's um, become a leader in studying cardiovascular medicine and HIV and the non-infectious complications of HIV. She's been working in this field since at least 2009, sounds like, and uh, is currently an assistant professor um, at Harvard Medical School and an attending physician at MGH. I just learned she also does a lot of global ID presentation work in the regular setting and has a job structure that sort of similar challenge. So we're very glad she could come today. And um, she has no conflicts of interest in this photo, so I've got to mention. Thank you. Great. Great. Um, well, thank you so much for, uh, for having me up here. It's wonderful to be here. Um, I really appreciate it. Nice to see everyone. Um, I will, um, you know, I'd like to keep this as clinically focused as we can, so I'll give a little bit of background, but then sort of focus on how what we know ties into the clinical management. Um, and I would also love to have, to have it be interactive, so if anything comes up it along the way, please feel free to, um, to offer any comments or questions. Um, so, so I have no disclosure, as I mentioned. Um, and these are the learning objectives for the talk today. So the objectives are to be able to demonstrate an understanding of the epidemiology of cardiovascular disease and HIV, to recognize the traditional and novel risk factors for cardiovascular disease and HIV, and to apply recommended best practices for managing cardiovascular risk and HIV. Um, so here's an outline of what I'll go over. We'll start talking a little bit about the background and the epidemiology and what we know about the intersection of these two diseases. Um, and then shift and talk a little bit about the pathophysiology and the mechanism. And then finally focus on the management, focusing on both how we predict risk and how we manage risk factors and prevent disease. Um, so as we're all familiar in this room, um, and as we're watching, um, HIV-infected patients as a group are aging. Um, you can see from this graph, this is, this is over time to 2030, the predicted distribution of age, and the darker, or the lighter, not the lighter uh, sections, which indicate older age groups, are expanding um, as, 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 the, uh, as the years go on. Um, so it's estimated that the proportion of HIV patients over age 50 will increase from 28% in 2010 to uh, almost 75% in the year 2030 in this particular study. Um, in addition to aging, as we're seeing, HIV patients are facing increasing rates of non-communicable, non-infectious diseases as they age. So this is something that shows over time the burden of non-communicable diseases. So this includes cardiovascular disease and its risk factors, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, osteoporosis, and non-age malignancies. And the, the lighter bars here indicate three or more of these non-communicable disease comorbidities. So you can see that as HIV patients are aging um, as a group, um, if by 2030, the number of more of these comorbidities, but the proportion, as indicated by the top bar, will increase over time. And the proportion with no comorbidity decreases over time. Um, and you might say, well, you know, it makes sense as a group this patient is aging. These are mainly age-related diseases, so that makes sense. Um, but there appears to be a factor that, uh, contributed by HIV as well. So if you look at this slide, you can actually compare HIV-infected patients on the left to uninfected on the right. And this also is a slightly different study, but also includes non-communicable diseases, um, which are listed at the bottom. And as you can see, if you compare 
compare age group head-to-head in HIV to non-HIV, the HIV patients have a higher proportion with a larger number of comorbidities. For, so for example, in the 60 to 65 age group, you see the dark bar with three plus comorbidities is much larger in the HIV-infected individuals. So this indicates that the non-communicable disease burden that we're seeing is not only a function of aging, but certainly a part of it, but also appears to be a function of being HIV-infected itself. Um, so we've heard a lot about cardiovascular disease and HIV and its burden. This has been in the press. Um, it's been emphasized recently by the American Heart Association, which has devoted a section to this issue. Um, and I'll give you a little bit of the background on cardiovascular disease, which is the focus of this talk um, and of my work. Um, so there's been a number of studies looking at cardiovascular disease and HIV. And what they've shown is HIV confers an approximately 1.5 to 2 fold increased risk. So whatever your baseline absolute risk is, that's approximately double because of HIV. So if you look in the effect size column, this shows some of the major studies looking at this, and you can see it's you know, 1.5 to 2 fold. This differs by a few factor, factors that we'll mention, but this has been pretty consistent across the board, across different cohorts, and over time. Um, interestingly, when you parse this out by demographics, the relative risk of cardiovascular disease conferred by HIV appears to differ by a demographic subgroup. So interestingly, women are at a relatively greater risk than men, as are younger patients. So you can see, in the, if you look at the overall composite CBD endpoint graph in the upper left, um, you can see that the overall difference between HIV in blue and non-HIV in red is in the all. But if you look at, if you compare females to males, there's a relatively greater risk among females. And interestingly, when you look at the outcome of stroke, and you actually separate it out by gender, almost all of the increased risk is um, conferred by being female, such that there's not a significant difference between um, having a stroke and not in, in among males. Um, and there's a lot of speculation about, about why this may be true, because the absolute risk for women and young people, of course, is lower. Um, so the increased risk of cardiovascular disease is impacting both morbidity and mortality for HIV-infected individuals. This is the hospitalization rate for HIV-infected patients in one study by diagnosis. And you can see, so the, the, the very top is not as general infection, so that remains the most common cause. But you can see ABI is the green line, is age-defining infection. And over time, as we you know, anticipate and have observed, the, the rate of admission for age-defining infections has decreased. But interestingly, the red line CV for cardiovascular-related admission has gradually increased over time, such that a little before 2008 in this study, um, the lines cross, and there were more admissions for cardiovascular disease than for age-defining infections. And this reflects trends that we're seeing overall in the epidemic in terms of, you know, in terms of what is impacting the, the long-term well-being of patients. Um, there's been a similar impact on mortality. So this is a study out of France um, that shows mortality over three time periods, 2000, 2005, and 2010, um, with the bottom line being, uh, being 2000. So as you can see in the top, age-related mortality has declined significantly, something that we're all familiar with. And the cardiovascular, which is the fourth down, has increased significantly, but there's been a gradual increase as a relative cause of mortality among HIV-infected patients. Um, so that's a little, a little bit of background on what, on what we're seeing and some of the studies that support it. 
Um, so I wanted to turn now to the pathophysiology and, and try and understand why we're seeing this relative increase in cardiovascular disease. Uh, so in the, in the earlier era, so the 1990s, the early to mid-2000s, um, there, there was first an understanding that there was heightened cardiovascular risk in HIV. And this emerged through case reports initially, through cohort studies that I had highlighted. Um, and the thought at this time was that there were that these were the factors that contributed to the mechanism. So we saw elevated rates of traditional risk factors on the right, um, and there were thought to be adverse effects of specific antiretroviral therapy, which I'll discuss. And this was sort of the going hypothesis in terms of what, what was going on in terms of uh, in terms of this issue. Um, so multiple studies have shown that HIV patients have higher rates of traditional cardiovascular risk factors. So hypertension diabetes to a great extent, dyslipidemia with a, a slightly different um, altered lipid profile than we see in, in, uh, in non-HIV infected individuals. Um, and notably, as, as we see it on the figure here, um, smoking rates are extremely heightened in HIV with some, with some reports showing that HIV infected patients have an 85% lifetime history of smoking. Um, the impact of smoking in HIV has been demonstrated in multiple studies and I'll just highlight a recent one um, depicted by the graph on the left which actually showed that um, HIV patients are thought to lose more light years through smoking than through HIV itself. So this is an HIV-affected patient's age, um, the light years lost, and you can see the black line on the top is smoking, and the, and the bottom line is HIV. So smoking has a significant impact, um, and a study out of the TAD cohort has um, what we'd expect, but has specifically shown that with increased time since quitting smoking, the risk of having an MI declines over time. So what would expect that has been demonstrated in HIV individuals. Um, so interestingly, there's also been a lot of research on specific antiretrovirals and the risk of MI. I'll highlight this briefly, and I'm happy to discuss it um, you know, further if people, if people would like to. Um, this is out of the DAD cohort, which is a prospective observation with cohort um, that's looking at the adverse effects of antiretroviral therapy. Um, and this, what this showed was that probase inhibitors as a class increase the risk of MI with increased um, duration of exposure. So there were later studies looked at this more specifically, and the risk was more specifically linked to some of the older protease inhibitors, so indinavir and lopinavir or tonavir. Um, but there was this somewhat increased relative risk, not significant, but it's 16% in the relative risk um, with increased duration of exposure to protease. And this was from the New England Journal in 2007. Um, and so I won't, um, there, there are also data on the back of the year, which many might be familiar with. I haven't included those now, but I'm happy to discuss them. But I'll just mention briefly that later data from the same cohort looked at the NRTI back of the year and showed, um, again, an increased risk, almost twofold risk of MI with recent back of the year exposure. And there's been extensive data um, trying to either confirm or repeat that finding which basically has been split um, through cohorts, through meta-analyses, you know, looking back at trial data. So there still appears to be a signal, but there hasn't, it, it hasn't been consistently demonstrated, nor has there been a clear mechanism in relation to a bacteria. Um, so, you know, so thinking, thinking of these factors, so we know that traditional risk factors occur at increased rates in HIV individuals, and we know that specific medications used to treat HIV might also increase the risk. So this could plausibly give us the one and a half to two-fold increased risk that we're seeing. But 
a number of studies that actually looked at this have factored in the traditional risk factors, have factored in the medications, and across the board, there still appears to be residual risk, which is not explained by those traditional risk factors or by the antiretroviral medications. Um, and this risk, I'll tell you, is thought to be largely explained by inflammation and immune activation related to HIV. So let me turn here. So initial sort of interest in this hypothesis was generated from the SMART study, um, which many might be familiar with. It was a study of structured treatment interruption that was terminated early in 2006. Um, and while the primary endpoint was recurrent opportunistic infection or death, the study also looked at, um, at cardiovascular events. And what this showed was, um, and depicted in the bottom graph here, that patients who interrupted treatment had a higher rate of cardiovascular events. So if your viral loads were suppressed and you remain on continuous treatment, you had a lower rate. So if the, go if the hypothesis is that cumulative exposure or really any exposure to antiretrovirals contributes to increased risk, you'd expect the, the group on continuous therapy to have the highest risk. But in fact, the group that was spared, that interrupted or was spared the medications, was the one that had the heightened risk. And in concomitant with this, with the increased cardiovascular events, Inflammatory markers um, increased as in, as did HIV viremia. And these, some of the inflammatory markers in the SMART study were specifically linked with mortality. Now, this was not powered to look at cardiovascular endpoints. It was really looking at overall HIV-related endpoints. So there hasn't been able to be an analysis you know, showing whether, that, whether there was a, a statistically significant um, impact in terms of cardiovascular events. But it certainly suggested you know, that the findings of this sort of went against all the hypotheses and suggested that there was something else that we might want to pay attention to in terms of the mechanism. Um, and in fact, there's been an abundant amount of research focused on the role of inflammation and immune activation in HIV-associated heart disease. So I'll, I'll show you a little bit of it, um, and I'm happy to discuss it further. Um, this is a study looking at immune activation in association with parotid lesions. So a number of these studies have looked at um, surrogate endpoints because it's hard to you know it's hard to do the studies with the longevity required to look at hard endpoints. So have looked at um, either carotid intermediate, intermediate thickness, which is a surrogate marker of atherosclerosis, carotid lesions themselves, um, you know markers of vascular stiffness. Um, and what this shows is that patients with that patients um, who have carotid lesions have a higher level of immune activation as measured by these standard immune activation markers um, in HIV. And this is true um, for, for two markers that are shown here. <clears throat> Interestingly, the effect in this study was present even among virologically suppressed patients. So you might say, you know, if you're virologically suppressed, you have decreased levels of inflammation and immune activation. But a number of studies have shown that while the inflammation decreases with viral suppression, it doesn't, it doesn't um, reach normal levels in an HIV uninfected individual. So it's thought that these residual levels of inflammation are still contributing to this increased cardiovascular risk. Um, this is, so that was one, one mechanistic study. There have also been clinical studies which look at sort of the clinical surrogates of inflammation and immune activation that we measure. So looking at CD4 count and viral load. And the, this is, these are studies of CD4 showing that a lower CD4 has been associated with both MI and stroke. Um, and in the graph on the left, a CD4 less than 500 was a, the attributable, this is the attributable risk. So the risk factor of having a lower CD4 count was on par with having, having a lower LDL, your, your cholesterol ratio, smoking, you know, risk factors that we consider to be cardiovascular risk factors. 
Um, so a number of studies have shown CD4 to be related, again, sort of a marker of immune dysregulation. Um, and HIV RNA, which is a marker of, uh, you know, goes along with, with, uh, with HIV-related inflammation, has also specifically been shown to, linked, to be linked to both MI and to stroke in several studies. Um, and again, another example on the right here showing that having a non-suppressed HIV RNA is a risk factor that's on par with BMI, you know, hypertension, not quite as strong as smoking, but, but you know, remains in the model a significant risk factor um, for, for a cardiovascular outcome. And this is a recent study out of the VA that again sort of looked at, the, looked at this in a different way, but looks at the role of, um, of viral load and CD4 in relation to, to MI. Um, and what you can see, so if you look at the HIV RNA column, having a, um, having a non-suppressed RNA, so more than 500, poses a 75% increased risk of having MI. And having a suppressed viral load brings that risk down to about 40% increased risk. So what's interesting is the risk of MI decreases as you suppress viral load. What I'll also point out is when your viral load is suppressed, that risk does not decrease from one. So one would mean there's no risk at all there's still a residual 40% increased risk. So that 40%, and these are analyses that are adjusted for traditional risk factors and other factors. So that residual 40% risk suggests that even in patients who are on effective ART, who have achieved viral suppression and, and um, who are immune reconstituted, there still appears to be an increased cardiovascular risk. Um, so moving back to sort of our scheme of what we think is driving this increased risk, uh, we talked about the factors on the left initially, which are traditional risk factors, and while those don't fully explain the outcome, they certainly, they certainly still explain quite a lot. Um, we talked about now on the left a whole new set of, of novel risk factors which were not you know, accounted for in, in, um, in traditional explanations or models, and these include viral replication, inflammation, immune activation, microbial translocation, so the factors that are specific to HIV or to a chronic inflammatory state. Um, and interestingly, the role of ART on the top, so in the, in the prior diagram that had a red arrow which is for increasing risk, that is now, we think, flipped such that ART, by virtue of dampening down inflammation and immune activation, is overall beneficial. And I'll show you that this, the role of ART, is actually, as a, as a cardiovascular risk reduction intervention, is now reflected in the guidelines. Um, so let me let me just pause for a moment here before we get into management and see if anyone has any um, questions or comments. Yes. I'm all the way over here. Uh, so, what do you make of data in um, long-term um, progressors or lead controllers and things like that, and how does that fit into your algorithm? So it's so it's so it's a great it's a great question there. I left there was a slide that I left out for sort of the length the length that it's safe today, but I sometimes leave in um, that actually has looked at that. So it, it's a slide by it's a study by Priscilla Shu out of UCSF, um, and they have a large cohort of elite controllers. So they looked at carotid IMT, which is again a surrogate marker, but a reasonable surrogate for atherosclerosis, um, and they actually showed that that was. In, um, in, in elite controllers, I, carotid IMT was increased um, above the level, uh, or you know, it was, it was worse compared to HIV negative individuals. Um, and it was even work, it was even, it was actually even a little bit higher compared to controlled HIV infected patients. So we think that in, in elite controllers, likely the same mechanism is at play, even though they don't have viremia, you know, their immune system is, 
activated by to you know to fight off the infection by by you know mechanisms that we're still understanding how they're doing it. So this risk that we're talking about likely applies um, to that group as well. And the there there I don't think there've been specific guidelines on it to my knowledge, but in in the immunology field, um, the consensus is that earlier treatment is better. Now, 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 we're, you know, earlier treatment is better for you know is, is right, you know, treatment recommended for everyone, of course. But specifically for elite controllers, even if the CD4 is normal and they you know they remain suppressed and there hasn't really been progression, um, the the consensus is moving towards earlier treatment. And I, I don't know if any of you have patients here. You know, I have I have I have I have one elite controller in my practice, so I have. Like I have not been able to get him on treatment, even though I've gone through all this and suggested it. And it's it's a hard, um, it can be a difficult you know case to make. But I think that the data are supportive that the same sort of the same um, sort of non you know chronic disease complications certainly apply in the setting of, of um, you know elite controllers or long term non progressors and may you know may even be more of an issue um, because they may have slightly higher rates of immune activation. So would you suggest treating uh, elite control? So I so I would, and I will say, you know, this as I mentioned, this just came up with me in the past year or so with a patient of mine, and so I I went to my immunology colleague, you know, the big immunology center and a cohort of of, um, of elite controllers. So I so I went to my you know colleagues who were clinicians and immunologists, um, and they they all the consensus from the immunology side. It certainly is to, is, to, uh, is to treat, and the consensus, for, you know, again from what from from the data on cardiovascular risk, all of this suggests that it is um, that it's it's factors related to the, related to the immune response, which is you know which is present in robust and elite controllers. So I think the, the the consensus in the field is to is to treat you know to offer treatment and to treat elite controllers, even if they don't um, eat, you know even if they don't have high level or any you know even if they're if they have a suppressed viral load. Yeah, we, Sarah and I have a patient who yeah. 30 years. 30 years. 30 years? Without a detectable viral load. The, and totally under his mind. He's in his 60s now and never had any cardio, you know, healthy. Nothing, really. No, really? no cardiovascular risk factors? He has, uh, he has uh, experienced an MI in 2006. At that point, he was actively smoking and he mm -hmm. had some the psychological stressors going on. Mm -hmm. So we don't know if this is related to HIV or like his smoking and like life skills. Inter that yeah. is that's very interesting. And I, I mean okay, a lot of the a lot of the sort of the immune activation parameters and so we don't measure those clinically, we measure them in studies to see and it's, I mean we wouldn't even we wouldn't even know. I mean I, I would it's you know it's hard it's hard because if they've been well for thirty years, you know, what has yeah. What has changed? But what I told, I mean, my, my, I haven't been following, you know, I, I've not been seeing him for that long. He hasn't been infected for that long. But I, I think that I think there's an argument that our that our understanding is evolving. And I'm, I'm happy to send you, you know, more, you know, some more literature. But that our understanding is evolving. That we now think that, you know, it, certainly the smoking could have played a role. But there could have been, there certainly could have been other factors as well. And that he, we know his, you know, his level of immune activation is higher. And you know, interestingly. There's also there's this concept of viremia copy years, which hasn't really made it clinically, but some research studies have looked at it. So it's sort of the area under the curve of viremia. So if you've been infected, even if it's low level, you've been infected for a long time, you can measure either your viremia or you know your the proxy, your sort of inflammation levels. Um, or if you've been infected for a short time with a, with a high viral load. 
And that, that has been linked to mortality. So having higher divimumin copy years is linked to mortality. And there were a preliminary study looked at cardiovascular events, but it and sort of showed a link, but it hasn't been, I don't think, I don't think I've seen it published. But again, you know, if you think that it's this long time of this sort of simmering inflammation, I, I think I think that there would certainly be, you know, enough enough rationale to offer treatment and you know and encourage it. Um, it might be. I mean, it's it's a tough it's a tough sell, right? Because he's been. How can you prove that that the MI might have been linked? Probably don't want to use in the back of your face, right? But I would not use in the back of your, yeah. I would, I mean, fortunately, we now, so fortunately, we now have options because there are, you know, there, so there are CAF-based regimens, um, you know, there, there are integrase inhibitors. So we actually have a lot, before we had, we, you know, it was challenging because it, I don't know what adrenal function is, but if there's any sort of mild chronic kidney disease, it, it was really difficult to sort of select a, the appropriate NRTI backbone in patients at higher cardiovascular risk, but, um, I feel like there are definitely more sort of metabolically friendly options to treat, you know, that you could that, to offer him um, today. I mean, they're in their single though, you know, they're without getting into you know, specific regimens. But I would, you know, I would, I would, I would consider it. Would it be correct to assume the studies you have shown before that there is increased cardiovascular risk in HIV patients? That those studies have included elite controllers. So they, so to my knowledge, so that there are a lot of different ones. They have not, they have not specifically excluded them. But I can, you know, I, I wish I had left it in now. Um, I can show you. I'm happy to get your information and send you the study. It's a, it's a little. It's probably five years old or so, maybe a little more. But the study of specifically of elite controllers that looked at this, because it's the. Um, I think there's so few that it would be hard. Whether it, it included or excluded, it would be hard to tell whether the impact of the results. But there's one of carotid IMT that specifically is looking at elite controllers, and it's pretty it's pretty compelling the evidence. Um, all right, that's interesting. Very yeah, no, very interesting. I mean, these you know these are this is what I'm about to get into. I mean, these are clinical challenges for which we don't have sound evidence based answers now, and so that's what I will get into. You know, in the absence of complete data, you know, what do we you know what 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 decisions do we make? What do we offer our patients? Um, okay, so we'll move into management, um, and I think that sort of the take-home that I wanted to, to convey here is that all of the understanding of mechanism, which is looking at the role of inflammation and immune activation, has yet to translate into our clinical management. So almost all of our clinical management for HIV patients relies on the, the HIV primary care guidelines, but which in turn relies on the general population guidelines. And those are based on, um, on non-HIV populations. Many, most trials, actually, most of the cardiology trials actually actively exclude HIV patients um, and are a very different demographic with a different set of risk factors, with all traditional risk factors and not these non-traditional. So it's therefore unclear whether we can take guidelines that have been developed for and derived from the general population and just apply <laughs> them without modification to our HIV-infected patients. Um, and there have been some HIV-specific guidelines that have been limited. So what, in terms of interventions, I mean, one way that I kind of think about it is there are interventions that can be directed at traditional risk factors, which certainly should be used as a minimum, you know, as a minimum threshold and should be effective against those traditional risk factors. Um, there are also interventions that, can, that have dual activity. So statins and aspirin, I'll talk about, actually potentially have activity 
you know, anti-inflammatory, immunomodulatory activity in addition to the traditional roles that we think about in terms of antiplatelet and lipid lowering. Um, and then there are a number of new strategies that are focusing specific on the specifically on the inflammation and immune activation, which are being investigated to try and further dampen down this risk. So for your patient, for example, you, you know, could there be, you know, there's a study of low-dose methotrexate, you know, could that be something to, um, you know, that might that might help to do, to impact that immune activation? And, you know, I'm not sure if I'd still spare the ART, but you could, but I mean, that might be something additionally that could benefit patients like that. Um, so, as I mentioned, there, there is some guidance specific to HIV on metabolic and cardiovascular risk. There were HIV-specific dyslipidemia guidelines, but these are now from 2003, so they are quite outdated. Um, the European AIDS Clinical Society has released metabolic guidelines. And then we have the primary care HIV guidelines, um, which are helpful, but again, which derive their information mainly from the um, general <coughs> population, and they're not, it doesn't really incorporate all of the, all of the HIV-specific studies. Um, so I'll start off a little bit by discussing cardiovascular risk prediction in HIV. So as people are likely familiar, um, in the general population in 2013, there were a whole new set of cardiovascular preventive guidelines. And these included guidelines on predicting cardiovascular risk and release of a new cardiovascular risk prediction equation to replace the Framingham um, heart study. So I'll review some of this, but stop me if people, if people um, if people are familiar, so the new the new equation um, uh, the, so the new equation was derived from a broader population. It was now had separate equations for race in addition to gender, and it was thought to sort of provide a more reliable estimate of cardiovascular risk. Um, in the general population, there were initial and continued to be reports of overestimation of risk with a new equation. So risk was predicted to be too high. It was placing too many patients on statins, and, in, and take, putting HIV completely aside, there's been quite a bit of controversy about these guidelines, um, about, about the guidelines and the risk prediction equation in the general population. Um, so again, these are general population data. Um, you then take cardiovascular risk prediction to HIV, and if you think about the mechanism, so we think that there's a role for traditional risk factors and this other category of sort of HIV-related non-traditional risk factors. That all of those HIV-related factors are not incorporated in these risk prediction algorithms. So the hypothesis and what has been shown in some preliminary data is that actually these tools, whether it be the Framingham risk score or the new ACCHA risk score, um, are likely to underestimate risk in HIV because they only take into account the known traditional risk factors, but they don't further bump up the risk on account of the HIV itself, and or or even further on account of whether patients are viremic or not, whether they've been viremic for a long time or not. Um, so these are preliminary data showing that the observed events in the top line are greater than the predicted events in the bottom line. And this, um, you know, this is one area that in, in my group that we're working on, and there there are it's in the preliminary stages, but there are more data suggesting that the estimates we get are just too low to actually events exceed the, the estimates and that these tools are underestimating risk. Um, and these are just some of the preliminary data. You can, it's a little bit hard to see, but there is, there's like a bar, that, yeah, I don't know, it's like really come out so well here. There's like a bar here that's the predicted risk, and then the red lines are the observed risk. So the left is for the Framingham risk score, and the right is for the ACCHA risk score. So the, the, the events that we're actually seeing are higher than what would have been predicted by the risk scores. 
Um, so what does this actually mean, you know, meaning clinical practice? We don't know how well these um, the risk scores perform, and, and so interestingly, if they overestimate in the general population, but we think they might underestimate in HIV, you know, where where does that lead us? You know, are we are we actually getting accurate numbers in terms of our predicted risk? Um, and moreover, if you apply the Framingham and the New Score, they're discordant in about twenty percent of patients. So if you say, well, we'll just take a look at both of them, you might get different you know different answers from the Framingham and the ACCHA. Um, so, you know, one clinical strategy is to consider calculating both, although I think we're moving now more towards using the ACCHA, which is reasonable. Um, I mean, it might depend to some extent on your, your electronic health record and system and what is, you know, what is actually feasible to do in a visit, what maybe, you know, we had both, we had both built into our old system, and then we just moved to Epic, so now it's everything sort of up in the air, which is a... You know, another another discussion, but at the very minimum, consider calculating risk score design for the general population. Um, certainly, if someone is placed in a high risk category by a traditional risk score, I think it's reasonable to then apply, you know, be, be aggressive in risk product modification, apply whatever interventions would be applied in the general population. So whether that's starting a statin, starting an aspirin, um, certainly if the risk is high. Um, you know, ensure that they're on ART and that the ART is that they're suppressed in ART, um, and then strongly consider a statin. And we'll get into the we'll get into the cholesterol and statin recommendations as well. Um, so next, I just wanted to get back to the the, um, the how we prevent cardiovascular disease and HIV, and I wanted to start out with ART just to emphasize this point. So as I mentioned, um, if you go back ten years. It, antiretroviral drugs would have been thought to be proathergenic. So people you know, avoided them for multiple toxicities, including many of the metabolic toxicities. And it was thought that sparing them was the, you know, sparing might be the way to go, um, not to have this burden. That thinking has completely shifted. So it's, it's completely on the other direction, um, such that the, the thinking now is that ART suppresses the viral, if, it, 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 if in fact it works, suppresses the viral load. Um, that it dampens down inflammation and immune activation, and that those are actually those actually confer you know, a decrease in cardiovascular risk. And these are actually reflected now going back fairly you know fairly far to the um, to some of the HIV treatment guidelines. So in, even back in 2010, um, ART was recommended for patients at high cardiovascular risk, and in 2012, um, the recommendation to increase CD4 at greater than 500. You know now it's at, at diagnosis. Um, but one of the recommendations was driven by the improvement in cardiovascular risk. So this this has really shifted such that um, getting patients on treatment, which of course we're going to do from an HIV perspective anyway, actually is probably one of the tools that we have to decrease their cardiovascular risk. Um, now the specific medications, as we talked about, um, what, once you, you can sort of think of the overall risk, but the specific medications do still have an impact. So for someone who has had an event or a high cardiovascular risk, there are certain medications that it would it's still considered prudent to avoid. So one it, one is a back year because I think we're I think that the jury sort of remains out and may not we may not have definitive data on it. And then some of the protease inhibitors, particularly the older protease inhibitors, um, you know, are to be used with more caution in patients at high underlying risk. Um, so this is this um, this is sort of further emphasizes finding by the START study. Um, which folks are likely familiar with. Um, this was a this was a study for a, re a recent study, which was the first randomized trial to look at um, non-AIDS events, but at AIDS and non-AIDS events 
by starting by um, initiating uh, ART early at a CD4 greater than 500 versus later, so a CD4 less than 350. Um, so what, what this study showed is overall looking at the outcome of serious illness or death, there was a, about a 50% decrease in the patients who initiated treatment earlier, so more than 500. So again, this sort of this was sort of done after the guidelines change, but supports the guideline change, which has which has um, endorsed initiating HIV treatment earlier at, at higher CD4 counts. Um, interestingly, while the greater risk reduction was for AIDS-related events, so a 70% risk reduction for AIDS events if you started at um, ART at a CD4 more than 500, there was also a, about a third reduction in non-AIDS events, so 32% decrease, again, if you start, if you start um, treatment earlier. So this further supports um, that antiretroviral treatment has beneficial effects on cardiovascular and non-communicable disease outcomes. Now, they, they, could not, um, they couldn't look specifically, I don't think they'll be able to look specifically at cardiovascular events, because what I heard, there were something like 13 versus 14 events when they, you know, when they stopped the study. Um, but at least as a non-AIDS events group overall, there was a reduction. Um, so in terms of just summarizing ART and cardiovascular risk, the current thinking is we treat HIV um, you know, in, addition, in addition to the, to the main indication to also reduce cardiovascular risk. And there's a, there's a benefit from viral suppression and immunic reconstitution that's thought to outweigh any individual pro-athrogenic effects. Um, so the strategy, again, is to treat overall, but then consider your choice of individual drugs from the underlying cardiovascular risks for specific patients. Um, okay, so let's turn to statins and dyslipidemia and HIV, um, which is another, um, another interesting topic for which we will have more data soon. Uh, so dyslipidemia, as I mentioned, is prevalent in HIV. Um, statins, of course, are a mainstay of treatment, and they actually may, ha may impact both traditional and non-traditional risk factors. So statins are a very attractive option for our patients because in addition to their lipid-lowering properties, they have anti-inflammatory properties. So if we're looking at something that can really target both the traditional and non-traditional risk factors, this could be a possible intervention. Um, what we know so far is in HIV is that statins do lower LDL, which we would expect. Um, they've been shown to decrease immune activation in some small studies. Um, they've been shown to contribute to immune reconstitution. Um, and they've been shown to decrease mortality overall. Um, now, before I get to the, to, to the new data, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about the cholesterol guidelines in the general population. So in 2013, along with a new risk prediction tool, um, there were new cholesterol guidelines that were released. And these have been similarly controversial in the general population. So again, putting HIV completely aside and just looking at how we manage cholesterol and how we sort of stratify risk. Um, so these replaced the um, ATP3. And the new approach was sort of calling, um, identifying four major benefit groups for statins. Um, and those are listed here. And actually taking away the LDL treatment target. So just saying, you know, if you meet the threshold for starting on a statin and and that's it, you know, and you, and you just go from, you choose the intensity, and then that, and then you, and then you go from there. Um, the new calculator employs, or the, the new guidelines employ the new risk calculator. So that calculator, as you recall, overestimates risk, and the judge is thought to overestimate risk. So what, what has ended up from the cholesterol guidelines is that many more patients are recommended to be on statin treatments combined to ATP3. And if you look at what's driving the statin recommendation, again, this is all general population. In the bottom group, age 60 to 75, 
you can see that the bottom graph, the bottom line of the graph that says ACCHA, that sort of tan piece to the right is predicted risk. So most people who are newly recommended to be on statins are driven, it's driven by this new risk score, which is classifying more patients as, as high risk. Um, and there's less of a difference in the, you know, in the younger age group. So we have in the general population a lot of back and forth on should all these patients actually be on statins, should it be a fixed dose, are we really abandoning LDL targets or, or not, or are we still employing those? And there have been um, several other groups have released cholesterol guidelines that was actually sort of an update to this guideline that, that actually did incorporate non-statin treatments because those had been excluded from the initial guideline published in 2013. Um, but, there, but there's been a lot of back and forth about the, the, the sort of application and rollout of these guidelines into clinical management. I'd be, I'd be interested to hear what everyone, you know, what the, what the thought is here. Um, so then, and these, this is just a scheme of the new guidelines. So interestingly there, um, the, so the, the new guidelines and the old ones have a lot of limitations with regards to HIV. So the question is, can we just take these and directly apply them to our HIV infected patients? Um, the guidelines in two places specifically cite HIV as a, as a group for whom there's not enough information from the trials to support the data. So they literally say, you know, these may not be applicable in HIV in several places. And just looking at one example, so here's one example. This is a chart from the cholesterol guidelines um, that shows whether you, so there's, a, there's an algorithm, and depending on your place in the algorithm, it's recommended to start a high-intensity statin, a moderate-intensity statin, or a low-intensity statin. But if, and these are the recommended statins. So if you look for HIV, these statins need to be dose-adjusted in the setting of concurrent <coughs> probiotic inhibitors. These statins are contraindicated in the setting of concurrent probiotic inhibitors. And this, we don't know, although there's more data accruing on metabostatin, which is the newest statin. So e even just taking this, you know, you couldn't directly apply it because you'd have to say, well, are they a probiotic inhibitor or not? And if not, I mean, that would be the main class, but I mean, we still have many patients with probiotic inhibitors. Um, so, so there are, there are a lot of questions that remain unanswered about the guidelines. Um, so you can say, well, you know, what, what do we do? We have, a, we have a lot of data here, and it's hard to know whether to apply it. Fortunately, this is a question for, for which we will have better data in the near future. So the reprieve trial um, is something which, which I'm, not, I'm not sure if it's enrolling here, but something that people may, may be familiar. But it is, it's the first large-scale randomized controlled trial to look at cardiovascular <coughs> risk reduction to HIV. So it's a statin trial, 6,500 patients, um, multinational and some, um, some international sites as well. And the hypothesis is that statins will prevent cardiovascular disease and HIV-infected individuals. And it's targeting HIV-infected patients who are low or moderate risk by traditional risk paradigm. So it's not taking the highest risk, you know, smokers, you know, five risk factors, um, but it's targeting a slightly lower risk group um, with lower LDL, and the hypothesis is that, that, the, that if there's an effect, it will be an effect via the anti-inflammatory properties of statins in addition to the lipid lowering properties. Um, so that is, that's been enrolling for a little, is it over a year or so, so we'll, we won't have the data yet, but at least those data will be, you know, we'll, we'll provide some hard trial data um, and hard outcome data to help, um, to help with our decisions about how we use statins and whether more HIV patients should be eligible for them. Um, so just so sort of summarizing statins in HIV, as I mentioned, <coughs> HIV patients have been excluded from the trials um, to date. There's a different mechanism of cardiovascular disease, a different profile. 
Um, and it's, it's really unclear whether we can directly um, transport the cholesterol guidelines. Um, I think what we do know is, from sort of a traditional lipid perspective, it, it's still likely that statins will be beneficial sort of for, at, the, at the minimum for patients who meet the guideline recommendations. So I think applying, you know, applying the guidelines and recommending statins for those who do qualify is a reasonable approach. And the question is, are there more patients who are not identified by the guidelines who also benefit from statins? And that's the question that we will answer. Um, and then I'll just turn to sort of how we manage <coughs> briefly. Um, you know, I'll direct you to the um, to the HIV primary care guidelines. So, so in HIV, we check lipids a little bit more frequently, largely because some of the antiretroviral effects. So, the HIV primary care guidelines have recommendations in terms of how often to check lipids. You know, checking them um, within you know within a certain time after changes in ART, um, and then and there are also specific recommendations regarding statins and fibrates. Although the I think the, the I'm not sure if the latest HIV primary care guidelines reflect the latest cholesterol guidelines. Um, but I'll also note that the 2013 HIV primary care guidelines um, do include a detailed drug interaction chart. So if you're looking at statin and ARV, it's a good, you know, it's a good chart to just check and see if there's any dose adjustment that's, that's required um, because of antiretrovirals. And then again, I'll just highlight, this is just a chart sort of highlighting what we know with regards to statin and protease inhibitor use. Um, and again, just something that always has always has to be checked after you know after making a decision to initiate a statin. Um, so I will I will briefly mention aspirin, for which we know probably even less than statin in HIV infected patients. Um, these are the general population aspirin guidelines. They were just updated this spring, um, and I think again what I'll note is in the general population, there's been some um, sort of evolution of, of in the decision of who to use aspirin for. So this has been, there have been smaller groups identified for whom aspirin is thought to be definitively you know, beneficial for primary prevention. Um, if, you take, if you take it to HIV, you know a little bit about aspirin. What we do know is that um, if you go by the general population guidelines, aspirin is underused in HIV. So even just say, saying, you know, we should go by the general population guidelines, and interestingly, these um, these are data out of our out of the cohort we have in Boston. Um, the the left is low cardiovascular risk, so judging by the number of traditional risk factors, and the right panel is high risk. So you can see the difference in aspirin use is much greater. So among high risk patients who qualify for aspirin use, the use is actually much lower among HIV infected and non HIV infected patients. It's not clear entirely what's driving this difference, whether it's sort of either you know, bleeding, bleeding risk, whether it's um, multimorbidity, whether some of these data were in earlier era when you know, primary prevention of cardiovascular disease just was not the focus of our care because there were, there were so many other competing risks. So, but these, these are the data is that aspirin appears to be underused. Um, there've also been, so similar to statins, there's a hypothesis that aspirin could work its traditional antiplatelet effects but aspirin um, also has some immune, some you know, immune acti effects and immune activation as well. So there was an initial one-week study of aspirin that showed that aspirin decreased immune activation. So they said, oh well, maybe maybe aspirin will have even more effects, you know, to target the non-traditional risk factors in HIV. So this is a study just presented at this year's Croy conference, um, a large ACT study that unfortunately showed 
that aspirin did not have any effects on any, any, any you know, any anti-inflammatory or effect on immune activation in HIV. And they looked at a number of markers of monocyte activation and endothelial activation, and unfortunately across the board, um, and this, it was 12 weeks of aspirin, there were, it was a negative study, there, was no, there were no additional effects. So I think the thought is that perhaps aspirin may have an effect even in lower, at lower cardiovascular risk HIV patients because of its um, platelet, you know, its, its effects on platelets, not its anti-inflammatory effects, because they don't seem to be the targeted effect needed for HIV, at least from this study. Um, and HIV, do, HIV patients at baseline do have elevated rates of platelet, um, platelet activation. So I think, there, I think there's still likely to be a role for aspirin, but we don't know as much about it. Um, so I think sort of summarizing what we do know and what we can do clinically, aspirin may modulate traditional and novel cardiovascular risk factors, but it didn't, in this recent study, it didn't really seem to help with the novel risk factors. Um, it is underused in the population according, according to patients who qualify for aspirin use. Um, and aspirin use overall is lower in HIV than non-HIV. So I think in terms of a strategy, I think you know, going, by the, going by the general population guidelines is certainly reasonable, and I don't think there's a reason to avoid aspirin if there's no clear contraindication to it, just by virtue of HIV status. In fact, probably, you know, probably just the reverse. Um, but what does seem likely is that aspirin alone will not be our solution to sort of this novel mechanism of cardiovascular disease, that it will be, aspirin will be in combination with other cardiovascular prevention methods. So I'll note here, so we've been talking a lot about the novel risk factors and what, what, to, do, you know, what to do about them in our prevention approaches. Um, I'll note that there, there have been and are a number of studies looking at other ways to modulate this inflammation and immune activation. So you might, you'll, you know, you also, in cardiovascular cessation, you also have your statin, and you look at others in addition. These have all been studied across the board. None so far has shown that a safe and effective way to decrease that, that residual immune activation in HIV. And again, the hypothesis is if we decrease that residual immune activation, we will decrease downstream cardiovascular events because that's driving them. Um, there is an ongoing ACTG study of low-dose methotrexate that's looking at a sorry, it's looking at a vascular surrogate outcome. So that will be informative. But so far, um, there unfortunately there hasn't been something you know, on a specific immunomodulatory uh, approach that has been identified um, that, that we could apply in clinical practice. Um, so I'll, I'm just going to briefly discuss the traditional risk factors. I think we're all more familiar with these: um, smoking cessation clearly should remain a priority. I think we've talked a lot about what's different about HIV and the novel risk factors. Smoking is, smoking is a, a clear traditional risk factor that impacts our patients and the rates are extremely high. Um, so it should be a priority for, for all patients. And I think applying the approaches that we apply with our, you know, our non-HIV patients um, makes sense and sort of considering it's just that you know, in, our, in our HIV clinics, um, systematic approaches to identify smokers or to counsel them. And we have an NP in our clinic who's specifically trained in smoking cessation, so we can do, you know, a smoking cessation referral, and which some patients, you know, appreciate, or or linking to smoking cessation groups, or linking to quit lines, you know, whatever, but whatever appears to work for the individual patient if they're, you know, at the point where they're contemplating quitting, or or getting them to that point. Um, so for diabetes and hypertension, the management that we know of is um, is similar in, in HIVs and non-HIV. There's not as there's not as many differences. 
I'll point out a couple, a couple of differences. So a couple of studies have shown that hemoglobin A1C may actually underestimate glycemia in HIV. We're not, it's not exactly known why, but it might be that, so if we use this to diagnose HIV patients, um, it may, you know, it may, it, it may miss, it may need a, a lower cutoff to actually diagnose di diabetes. Um, this has been borne out in a couple of studies, but not across the boards. Um, and again, the HIV primary care guidelines have current recommendations on how often to check, um, to screen for diabetes, and how to manage, you know, how to, you know, what targets if, di if diabetes is diagnosed. Um, for hypertension, the current recommendation is following the general population, the GNC-8 guidelines. So, um, moving back now to our scheme of what's causing and what's driving HIV-associated cardiovascular disease. That's what we know, so what can we do to prevent it? So we certainly can treat the traditional risk factors, and this should not be lost when we're talking about all of these novel risk factors, because they certainly are continuing to play a role, especially with smoking. Um, we can use um, treatment of HIV uh, now, and now is one of our tools to prevent cardiovascular disease at well, because it decreases all of these factors on the left, which are the novel HIV-specific risk factors. And in terms of what to do about this inflammation, if, all, if there were, patients are already suppressed in ART, but we know they have these resi this residual chronic inflammation, which is posing a risk, we believe. Um, this is what we talked about there. So either it will be traditional um, interventions, which also can have you know, anti-inflammatory properties, or um, we may need to develop new strategies to target the inflammation and immune activation that is specific to HIV. Um, and hopefully with a combination of these, we can uh, prevent disease. So just summarizing some of the key questions that are remaining in the field. Um, is the new calculator and are the new cholesterol guidelines applicable in HIV? To what extent um, can we apply them? What is the role for statins in HIV? And Reprieve will address this question. Um, will tailored immunomodulatory agents further decrease cardiovascular risk? Um, are, are cardiovascular prevention strategies similar in key subgroups. So do we do the same for HIV-infected women versus men, for patients in resource-limited settings, for patients co-infected with hepatitis C? These are still questions that we're looking at. Um, and should HIV itself be considered a cardiovascular risk equivalent? So by virtue of HIV, should all patients be on an aspirin or a statin? This is a question that's posed frequently. Um, and should ART you know, similarly be considered an intervention to reduce cardiovascular risk? And I think that this we, this we believe it, that it should be. Um, so just summarizing sort of what, you know, what we know, there's, there's a significant impact of cardiovascular disease in HIV, and the pathophysiology is driven by, um, in addition to tr traditional factors, by HIV-related inflammatory and immunologic factors. Um, our current treatment and prevention uh, paradigms do not reflect this pathophysiology. So we're, we're, still a, we're still sort of a step behind, and that's what we're working to bridge that gap. Current recommended strategies, based on the data we know and based on the guidelines that we have, are to build cardiovascular risk assessment into practice um, at a minimum, um, to aggressively manage traditional risk factors, particularly smoking, um, to start a statin if they meet the general population guidelines, and again, we should have more guidance on statins in the next few years. Um, to have a low threshold for a diagnostic workup in traditionally low-risk groups. So if a young woman with HIV comes in with chest pain, and you might normally say, well, let's follow it, you know, there's concurrent anxiety, that may not be the, you know, the appropriate step. We're seeing cardiovascular disease in women and at younger ages at higher rates. And admittedly, the absolute risk remains low, so if your absolute risk is 1%, 
and you're, you know, and you have, and it goes to two percent. That's not much, but as the as the absolute risk gradually increases, we are seeing events in in traditionally low risk suburbs. Um, and again, treat HIV as, as you know for one reason is to reduce cardiovascular risk. And I think I just conclude by saying, you know, I think I think the intensity and the consistency of the HIV care that we provide really offers an opportunity um, to also prevent and manage the chronic disease complications in our patients. Um, so thank you very much, and I'm open to questions or comments. <laughs>
um, full dose old produce. Is there any specific data now about what so, those are here? So there, so it's I mean it's hard it's hard to separate out COVID and the the most for tundra the most impact on triglycerides. So they and there. You know, I don't, I don't know that there's data, but it appears to affect patients somewhat differentially because there's some who, it's on a retundra cocaine regimen, it's very difficult to achieve normal, even triglycerides in less than 500 of, of the normal range. Um, I don't know of head-to-head -head data comparing, comparing sort of full dose to full dose to low dose. Um, I know because every because it's or sort of unboosted regimen, you know, unboosted to retundra containing regimens. I don't think that the, um, I think that. The, the retonavir, though, is less, is, is sort of contributing less to the over, to the LDL and HDL, you know, the, the sort of those, those parameters, and more to the triglycerides. Um, and so, and then, and again, this, and it doesn't sort of actually include that in the general population, there's some doubt it's a specific role of triglycerides with regards to cardiovascular risk. I mean, it's not, it's not so clear cut. Um, but I think that, and I don't know if there'll be a lot more, because now, I mean, now the integration inhibitors were moving, you know, their options to just move away from, right. Um, from the, from those regiments. In some, in some things, sorry. Yeah, I mean, okay. um, I'll ask a final question if nobody else just briefly. We still have a lot of patients who with trouble getting to go to the lab. So, <laughs> when, yeah, when do you, do you in your clinic, do you guys settle for non-passing labs and you know, are there other workarounds that you know are becoming more accepted? Because it's really a big barrier. So yeah. So I so I think so. The, the movement is going. The movement is towards non-passing and just consent. And if though, I mean, if those are if those are normal, then yeah, then it's great. You know, then it's great. Obviously, um, but the movement of the general population also is towards non-passing. There's not. It was sort of thought that passing was. Was, you know, it was, you know, it was absolutely necessary, but there's actually moving away from that in the general population as well. So I think it's, you know, I would not, I certainly, I mean, I, I, cert I always check non-passing and it's, it is rare that, you know, it's, it's hard to get, to get patients to come back. So I think going by, you know, you, you know, you could do it, but you know, the other, the other argument is sort of that people diet that, you know, people aren't always fasting. So that's the ideal, but I mean, their diet sort of reflects, I mean, non-passing is a reflection of, your reflection of where they're at, and maybe fasting, you know, maybe you were being too stringent. So I think that I, you know, I would check non-fasting, and if I mean, if it, if it's someone who is able to, and if they're abnormal, and you sort of want to give the opportunity to come back, you could. But it's not. We're moving away from, you know, away from sort of, bending, you know, doing everything possible, you know, like to, yeah. to get the person back in. Because it's not. I mean, it's not practical. Not. <laughs> um, and I think we don't, again, we don't even know exactly the threshold. I mean, that's, that's part of it, we're still understanding. It. It's, even if that person has abnormal non-fasting and comes back and fasting is normal, they're still very well meet, maybe a role for <clears throat> intervention, you know, anyway, aside from what size you live in. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.